So, back into Revelation chapter 13, and as you know, we haven't actually studied Revelation chapter 13, but it's all about the Antichrist, and the Bible has a lot to say about the Antichrist, and so we've been going through the main Old Testament passages that describe the Antichrist, and without those passages, Revelation really doesn't make much sense, so we need to get the background, understand what the Old Testament says about it, and then it's really quite simple. We just replace the symbol with the literal meaning, and off we go. That's it. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come into your word today. Lord, reveal truth to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, why does the Bible have so much to say about this one man, about this Antichrist? Because it's not just the man. And today we're really going to get into that. The man, the Antichrist, Satan, and also the Empire. They all have the same effect. They're synonymous in that they have the same effect. So, I'm just going to put up the chart of the four kingdoms as a revision from last week and also to keep going this week. So remember in Daniel chapter 2, you have the massive statue with the head of gold representing Babylon, the chest and arms of silver representing Medo-Persia, the belly and thighs of brass representing Greece, the Grecian Empire, and then down the bottom you've got the two legs of iron representing Rome, and then you've got the feet of iron and clay which also represent the Roman Empire, but it's the future Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is in two stages. Back when Daniel was around, he was living in the time of the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. And then the Medo-Persian Empire defeated them. And then the Grecian Empire defeated them. And then finally, later on, the Roman Empire defeated them. Then the Roman Empire kind of disintegrated. It disappeared around 500 AD. But in the future, there will be a revived Roman Empire described by the feet of iron and clay. It'll be strong and brittle, strong and weak at the same time. And the ten toes, we found out, represent the ten kings that will be ruling in the last kingdom, in that last revived Roman Empire government, and they will have uh, authority. And then finally, the little horn comes up after the ten kings, after the ten horns, and he is the Antichrist who will have the authority. The other horns, the other kings, will give their authority to him. So. Last week in Daniel chapter 8 and 1 to 8, we had the Medo-Persian Empire represented by the ram, who was then defeated by the Grecian Empire represented by the goat. And last week in Daniel chapter 8, we saw that God predicted that there would be a madman, who we know as Antiochus Epiphanes, that would come against Israel and stop temple worship for, how long was that? 
So there's two numbers there. It could be 2,300 evenings and mornings, speaking of the number of sacrifices that were stopped, or 1,150 days. And we also saw that this Old Testament Grecian king was a type or picture of the coming Roman king, the Roman Antichrist in several ways. And so we did something last week where I read something out and where there's a blank, you put the word in, okay? So we're going to do that quiz again now as a reminder of what we did last week, all right? So, just as Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power with force and intrigue, so will the, yes, the Antichrist. As he persecuted the Jews, so will the, the Antichrist. As he stopped temple sacrifice and desecrated the temple, so will the, the Antichrist. As he seemed to be a complete success, so will the, the Antichrist. <laughs> From what Antiochus did to the Jews in his day, therefore one may know the general pattern of what the, the Antichrist will do in the future. Okay, so a type or picture. Very easy. So we've got one more small section of Daniel. It's very small and we will actually get into Revelation 13 today. So remember in Daniel chapter 8, it focused down on two of the four world empires and the Mede and Persian and then the Grecian and then it skipped about 200 years to describe the exploits of that one wicked Grecian king who was a type or picture of the Antichrist. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Daniel 11 also starts out with the kingdoms of the Medes and Persians and the Greeks, okay? But it's different from chapter 8. Instead of focusing on one particular guy and his campaign to try and destroy Israel and stop the temple worship and things like that, this outlines exactly how the Median Persian Empire would be defeated, how many kings there would be, and then it goes into the Grecian Empire, and it gives, like, who's seen that TV show, Days of Our Lives? I hope you don't. I hope you haven't. But you all know what it stands for, right? It's like a soap opera where they just, you know, all this stuff goes on. You know, all the little details. Well, that's what this is like. It's a rundown of the northern and southern Grecian kingdoms, and it outlines chronologically, covering a period of about 300 years, uh, various marriages, intrigues, battles, who wins them, what they gain, how they win, or how they lose. And it's just simply amazing. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to go through one verse just to give you a taster. All right? So the context is this. It predicted that at a certain time, one of the kings of the south would make peace with the king of the north. This is the Grecian Empire, Egypt and Syria. Egypt in the south, Syria in the north. They're going to make this peace agreement by giving his daughter in marriage to the northern king. But when the southern king died, the peace agreement would fall apart and the daughter, her son, and the northern king she married would be killed. Okay. So that's a pretty specific Prophecy, don't you think? So let's read it. It says, At the end of some years, they, the king of the north, Syria, and the king of the south, Egypt, shall make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north 
to make a just and peaceful marriage agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her might, neither shall he and his might endure. She shall be handed over with her attendants, her child, and him who strengthened her in those times. So, that's what we read. Here's what happened. You ready? So, going through this verse 6. At the end of some years, they, the king of the north, Syria, and the king of the south, Egypt, shall make an alliance. So, there's a marriage. You remember Solomon married the Egyptian princess and to make a peace agreement with them when Solomon was around? Well, here, they make a peace agreement with by the king of the south giving his daughter to the king of the north, as in marriage. And then the next part says, The daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. And this was fulfilled in the marriage between Antiochus II, that's not the same Antiochus as we are talking about before, he's Antiochus Epiphanes, that's Antiochus IV, he's a few kings down the line. So this was fulfilled in the marriage between Antiochus II, the northern Syrian kingdom, and Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II. And there was peace for a time because of this marriage. But Ptolemy II died. Now what do you think happened? Well, verse 6 says, She shall not retain the power of her authority. Well, once Ptolemy II died, Antiochus II put away Berenice and took back his former wife. Laodice. Can you imagine that? See, what happened was, at the start, to make this peace agreement, Antiochus II had to divorce his wife, Laodice, and then marry Berenice. And so this Laodice, she was quite put out. I can understand why. But when Ptolemy II, the king in the southern kingdom, died. You know, Antioch II said, you know what? You know, I've got no reason to keep this peace agreement now, so I'm going to get rid of Veronese, I'm going to divorce her, and I'm going to remarry my previous wife. <laughs> but you know what? The next bit says, neither he nor his authority shall stand. Talking about Antioch II, Laodice didn't trust her husband, Antiochus II, so she had him poisoned. He died, okay? He died. It says, neither he nor his authority shall stand. He's gone. And she, meaning Berenice, the daughter who was handed over in marriage for the peace agreement, she shall be handed over with her attendants, her child, and they will be killed. And after the murder of Antiochus II, so Laodice killed her husband, she also killed Berenice, her infant son, and her attendants, exactly like Scripture said. So can you see that it's very, very specific and detailed? There's no way that I could even begin to make a movie with those kind of twists and turns, you know? But the Bible just gets it right, and it's 100% correct. And it's got 36 verses of that. So it's interesting. But we're going to jump forward. A long time, actually. In verse 35, finishes with Antiochus Epiphanes, that's Antiochus IV, 
And suddenly, in verse 36, we jump into the end times. We jump into the tribulation. So they call this a prophetic parenthesis, where you jump from one era to another. And there's no note in the text saying, oh, and now we're going 3,000 years into the future. <laughs> All right? You just got to figure it out. So now we're going to go to Daniel eleven thirty-six. And the king shall do according to his will. And this is speaking of the Antichrist. So it finished off talking about, in verse 35, Antiochus Epiphanes. And now it switches to the Roman Antichrist. And we'll see why. And the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that which is determined by God shall be done. So it says that he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. So the angel is explaining to Daniel that this king would blaspheme God and exalt himself until when? The wrath or indignation has been accomplished. What's that talking about? The wrath has been accomplished. Where in the Bible does God pour out his wrath? Tribulation. So the wrath has been accomplished and what has been determined shall be done. For that which is determined by God shall be done. What's God's plan for the end of the tribulation? Who comes back? Jesus comes back. So, the wrath has been accomplished, speaks of all the judgments in the tribulation period, and then what has been determined shall be done. Jesus comes back. And then it goes on, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. So Antiochus Epiphanes did this in a general sense, but he was still loyal to the Greek gods because he was a Greek. He put a statue of Zeus in the temple, not of himself, but the Antichrist is going to put a statue of himself in the temple. And Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4 says, he shall sit as God in the temple of God, showing that he himself is God. And we move on to verses 37 to 39. And it says, He shall not regard the gods of his fathers, or him, or to whom women desire to give birth, the Messiah, or any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. So this is the Antichrist, right? What he's going to do. But in their place he shall honor the god of fortresses, or forces, strength, power, a god whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver, with precious stones, and with pleasant and expensive things. And he shall deal with the strongest fortresses or forces by the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall magnify with glory and honor, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for a price. So just a couple of quick things here about this, a good description of the Antichrist, and the things he's going to do, the way he's going to rule the world, and take over the world. He shall honor a god of fortresses. So the Antichrist will take hold or gain power through military might and the shrewd use of 
or smart use of great riches. So basically, he won't always have to fight, but he's going to have that might behind him. He's going to have this world's armies behind him, basically. And anyone who tries to rebel against him will be crushed. So the word fortress there is referring to military strength when it talks about nations. And he shall deal with the strongest fortresses or the strongest nations, the strongest militaries. And so he's going to be able to defeat anyone who comes against him. Like if America, for example, said, no, we're not going to submit. Too bad. (laughs) They're out of there. Verse 39 is really interesting. And this is a, a speculation, okay? So sometimes I like to speculate. So listen to this. By the help of a foreign god. That's interesting, isn't it? By the help of a foreign god. Okay, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign god. Hmm, what does it mean? Well, again, it's just speculation, but I was listening to Hal Lindsey and he was suggesting that it could be UFOs. All right, UFOs. Okay, now considering the following before you laugh at me. The belief in the supernatural and the occult is increasing exponentially today. More and more people are believing in the existence of UFOs. It's a very recent phenomenon. It started out mainly in a big way in the 1960s. The messages that people receive from these so-called aliens are always demonic. And there are many real or validated UFO sightings, and they're getting more and more frequent. Now, some people say, oh, it's just extraterrestrial but it's not why because these things when they manifest when they appear they move stop and change direction like you know going thousands of miles an hour and then instantly just stop or go 90 degrees or go back the other way that's physically impossible for something with mass okay it would just disintegrate so these things are not physical they are spiritual We also know that in the end times, in the tribulation, Satan will give the false prophet immense power to do incredible miracles. Like, for example, call fire down from heaven. So Satan at the moment is restrained. 2 Thessalonians 2 says Satan is restrained. He cannot use all his power now. But he's very powerful. He can materialize things, all right? As we've seen with the UFO sightings and stuff like that. And he can, when he's allowed to, he can cause fire to come down from the sky. So, it says there, he shall deal with the strongest forces, the strongest militaries, by the help of a foreign god. Could it be that this whole alien thing that's been building up and becoming more and more popular could be used to actually help him destroy other militaries and armies. And remember that one angel could kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. What if some of those bad angels were allowed to be unleashed and materialize and do things? So again, this is just speculation, but it kind of goes along with what we are seeing in the world as it is. You know, I've been noticing the news has been more and more about these UFOs and stuff like that. So That's just a possible way that Satan could deceive 
the world into believing that his message is the truth. And I'm just going to read Revelation 13, 13 to 14. It says, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So, question for you. According to Revelation 13, 13 to 14, how does a false prophet deceive the world? By these amazing signs. Imagine the power trip the Antichrist and false prophet will have. They'll be drunk with power. They will be given the authority. So much authority, so much power, that if someone doesn't agree with them, they destroy them, or they have to submit to them. So these guys are just going to be drunk with power. And the second thing I want to point out is that the last part in Daniel 11.39, how the Antichrist is going to get people to do what he wants them to do. And this is going to come to application for us soon. What does it say there in the last part of Daniel 11.39? Those who acknowledge him, he shall magnify with glory and honor, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for a price. So those who acknowledge him, he shall magnify with glory and honor, and he shall cause them to rule over many. So just like Antiochus Epiphanes did this, he gave gifts to people, he shared things, and he gave them positions of authority, and he bought them. Does that make sense? He bought them. He bribed them, he bought them. Bribery and flattery. He gives them positions of power. It's the oldest trick in the book. He is appealing to our sinful human nature. As long as a person gets what they want, then they are happy and content and will submit themselves to Satan. And that's how Satan fools and controls people today. This isn't a new tactic. Satan is pretty boring with his tactics. He keeps using the same tactics over and over again, right? He gives us what we want so we don't complain and we don't want to change. Yeah? So according to Daniel 11.39, Satan promises to give those who submit to him glory and honor and positions of authority. So this applies to believers. Now when we do this, when we accept his offer, we can do this as believers, we can become sleepy, compromising and deceived Christians, content with our comfortable lives as we live willingly as a slave to sin. Now it might not be a bad thing we're in bondage to. It could be, you know, I'm working really hard at my job, I don't have time to do all the other things, I don't have time to read the Bible. Or, my family is most important, I don't have time for God. Or, it could be other things. You know, more obviously sinful things. From my experience in the school I work at, a lot of the things that stop the kids from walking and continuing in their relationship with God is relationships with the opposite sex, the boyfriend-girlfriend thing. They get what they want. They get their boyfriend, get their girlfriend, but they're rendered useless for the kingdom of God because they're trapped in lust bound by the physical attraction to the other person. And that's called, what's that word called? Infatuation, okay? 
So their sin has broken their relationship with God on a practical level, and they are practically out of fellowship with God. You're still a part of the family of God. You're still saved, right? You're not out of God's family. You're not kicked out. God never kicked you out of his family. But you're not choosing to experience a relationship with God. You're choosing to experience connection to something else. You're getting your pleasure from something else. Again, it could be something that's not necessarily bad. All right, It's just anything that goes before God is more important than God. It needs to be put down and put in its place or got rid of. Now, Satan doesn't want to wake us up. So Satan will often, especially in our Western world, I believe, he'll make our lives comfortable, give us the things we want, and we'll just snooze away, <laughs> not doing anything really for the kingdom of God, maybe going to church. You know, We can still go to church and be ineffective. But there's other things too. Some of the things that um, will stop us from reaching our potential in Christ to be who Christ wants us to be and to be useful, to be a vessel of honor, to be useful in this world, to share the gospel, is money. A lot of people will chase money. Careers, drugs, gaming, porn, social media, sports. And they get caught up in all these things. And that's why, again, there's so many sleepy, compromising Christians who are chosen to allow their sinful nature to dominate them. And Romans 8, 5, and 6 talks about that. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So there's a snapshot of how Satan is going to deceive. And I wanted to bring that up because Satan is still using the same tactic right now to deceive us. He's giving us exactly what we want. He's gratifying the desires of our sinful nature. We're comfortable, we're complacent, and we're basically a sleeping soldier. We're not doing anything really for the kingdom of God if we're like that. Now, in contrast, what do you think Satan does to Christians who are living in obedience to God and are not compromising or bound by habitual sin and are shining as a light in this dark world? How's Satan going to deal with those people? He's going to attack them. He's going to persecute them. He wants to do everything he can to put them down. All right. So what are some of the attacks that Satan will use to make us stop or try to make us stop being a witness for Christ and loving Christ? What are some of the things that might make you think about giving up? Oh, it's all too hard. This Christian thing's too hard. Following users is too hard. Yep, rejection from friends and family, yep. Things like discouragement, slander, temptation. You know, temptation is a big one. Uh, When you're doing well in ministry, um, that temptation can come and get you real quick. Uh, Complacency, laziness, pride, something as simple as that. Oh, I don't want to get up this morning. I want to sleep in. I skipped my Bible reading. Neglecting our relationship with God by neglecting the Word of God. Sickness, he can take them to sickness. The loss of financial security, the loss of family, loss of jobs, loss of reputation. So many things that he can do to try and get our mind off Christ and onto ourselves. That's basically what it is. Now, the last five verses or six verses in Daniel 11 describe 
the battle plan for the Battle of Armageddon. It's Satan's final battle on earth through the Antichrist as he controls the revived Roman Empire. So I'm not going to read the verses, but all I'm going to point out is that there's a rebellion, Satan and his armies, or you know, the Antichrist and his armies go over to the Middle East, to Israel, to squash this rebellion. The other armies come down and there's this kind of major uprising towards the end of the tribulation there. But Jesus comes back. And what do they do with all their guns? They all point them at Jesus. And so they're enemies, but they become friends because their enemy now is a common enemy, which is Jesus. And so the Battle of Armageddon actually starts out, if you read Daniel 11, 40-45, as Satan, the Antichrist, trying to suppress an uprising. But then when they get there, all the guns are pointed at Jesus. Now, there's two little things I want to point out from here. Remember in chapter 12 in Revelation that Satan will go after the Jews? He'll be really angry. He lost access to heaven. And now he's going to chase and persecute the Jews. But God will what? What's God going to do for the Jews? He's going to protect them. Jesus said, run to the hills. Okay, that's a clue. Run to the hills. Run to the mountains. It's got to be somewhere close. Somewhere you can run to, yeah? And we found previously that the location would be in the mountains of Moab and Edom which is modern-day Jordan. It's on the other side of the Jordan River, the east side of the Jordan River. And it's also where the rock city Petra is in the Old Testament called um, Selah. So I'm just going to read one verse. It's Daniel 11.41. It says, talking about the Antichrist, The Antichrist, he, shall enter into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the main or core of the people of Ammon. So, what did we say before? Edom and Moab, where the Israelites are, which part can't he overthrow? Which part is protected? Edom and Moab, which is now modern-day Jordan. And they will be protected right until the end. It tells us here that they're going to be protected right until the end when Jesus comes back and they accept him as their Messiah. So, a couple of questions for you. Check your understanding. Where did God tell the Israelites to flee? Where they were being protected? Edom and Moab, yep. It's now the modern country of Jordan. We refer to that land as now. And according to Revelation 12, 13 and 14, how long will God protect them there? Three and a half years. And is that the first half or the second half of the tribulation? Second half, good, yeah. That's all I'm going to say about those verses, except the last part of 45. This is the end of chapter 11, and it finishes with this. It says, Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Who's that talking about? The Antichrist. This guy who seems so successful. Here is his end, and I just want to focus on his end just a little bit. There is no one to help him. Despite all his benefit, despite all the power that Satan gave him, despite all the world following him, he comes to his end, just like God said he would. It's really sad, actually. 
Because if there's no one to help him, there's also going to be no one to help those who trusted in him either. Does that make sense? This is the epitome of hopelessness. Imagine yourself as someone who has taken the mark of the beast. All right, so I want to personalize this now. I want you to get you thinking about what this all means personally, not just intellectually, but personally. You're amazed at how powerful this world ruler was. You're captivated by his power and miracles. This man just seemed unstoppable and unbeatable. And there's like a news report in Revelation 13 verse 4. It says, So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. That's the Satan who gave authority to the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? No one can beat the Antichrist. This guy's undefeatable. This guy's got everything going for him. So just again, just pretend that you're in the tribulation, that you were deceived by the Antichrist lies and false prophets miracles. And imagine the sadness and regret when you realize that your Messiah was a false Messiah, like Antichrist, false Christ. And that what the two witnesses, the angels, and the 144,000 Jewish witnesses said was true. You thought that all those believers were fools because they ended up dead. Jesus wasn't turning up to help them. The Antichrist doing these miracles and all the Christians are dying. But he's back now and with a vengeance. Jesus comes back and he destroys his enemies. What do you have to look forward to? You know that something's coming. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's judgment for unbelievers. You know you're going to be judged, found guilty, and end up in the lake of fire. You will soon follow the Antichrist and the false prophet, and you just witness them being thrown directly into the lake of fire. They were so evil, they bypassed the great white throne judgment. They're the only two people who bypassed the great white throne judgment. They're so evil because they completely sold their souls to the devil. Completely gave themselves over to wickedness, to evil. Now, remember that news report? Who was like the beast? Who was able to beat him? Well, now, what are you saying? Oh, who was like Jesus? Who was able to make war with the Son of God? <laughs> but it's too late, isn't it? Listen to what the Bible says. It's really quite sad. Revelation 14, 9 to 11. Then a third angel followed them, shouting. Not speaking, but shouting. Anyone who worships the beast and his statue, or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the head, must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of the torment shall rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So I'd like you to read that with me. Is that okay? My goal here is to help you understand that this is a real battle, and we're fighting in a real spiritual battle. It's for the souls of mankind. You ready? Then a third angel followed them shouting anyone who worships the beast and his statue 
or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand, must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. It sums up the futility of rejecting Jesus. You're going to come to your end and no one will help you. So unbelievers today will face the same end. What it comes down to is that people are really selling the soul to the devil for the sake of a little pleasure. You know, we've all experienced it. That pleasure doesn't last, does it? It doesn't satisfy. There's only a little bit. A little bit of pleasure and a little bit of satisfaction, then the next minute you're not happy. So I'm encouraging you. Don't be deceived. Look where your decisions will lead you. Choose carefully what you choose to enjoy down here on earth. Don't be entrapped by Satan's lies. His promises are empty and his motives are bad. So he offers you something that's done in a beautiful gift wrap package. And oh, what Satan's offering is so great. And what's inside? Dog poo. <laughs> All right. You embrace this beautiful package, but then when you finally get into it and you get to the bottom of it, it's, oh, it's disgusting. What's Satan's motive? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to destroy your relationship with God, take you out of the fight, and steal your joy that you could have as you followed him. So don't be another sleeping, compromising soldier in God's army. Wake up, get up, and start fighting the good fight. And I want to encourage you, no matter how you started, what matters is how you finish. Okay? So finish well. You don't want to be doing things that you'll be ashamed of when Jesus comes for you. So live as though Jesus could come back today because he just might. <laughs> Another question for you. What does that mean? Short-term gain for long-term pain or short-term pain for long-term gain? So the whole point of it is this. What is your reason for living? Do you have your eyes on the world looking for short-term satisfaction? Or are you looking to eternity, remembering that you are a citizen of heaven and looking to your eternal reward and are willing to put up with some pain down here on the way. And why does Jesus allow us to go through that pain, the suffering? Yeah, it's how he changes us. It's through the trials that we're changed and transformed into his image. So the trials are an evidence of God's love because God desires to change us, to make us more into his image, to grow us. No trials, no growth. Now, finally, we get to Revelation 13. 
So let's read it. Revelation 13, 1 to 10. Before we do, I'll just explain what Revelation 13 is. It's obviously about the Antichrist. I keep saying that. But it's one of those explanatory or parenthetical chapters that explain the origins, history, movements, personalities, and other important information regarding the main people, organizations, or groups of people who will be around during the seven-year tribulation. So some chapters carry the timeline forward, like a chronology type thing. This happens, and this happens, and this happens. Like the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. But in the middle of all those things happening, you've got different people in the tribulation, like the Antichrist. You've got the false prophet. You've got the two witnesses. You've got the 144,000 evangelists. You've got the tribulation saints. You've got all these different people doing all different things. And so these chapters explain who these people are and what they're doing. So let's read Revelation 13, 1 to 10, and you should see lots of similarities in this section to what we've been studying for the last three weeks, okay? All right, let's do it. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, or Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. Who were they worshipping? They worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. So in worshipping the beast, the Antichrist, they're actually worshipping Satan. Okay, They worship the dragon. They worship Satan who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So, again, the beast, Antichrist, Satan, the empire, they have this similar effect on the world. And continuing in verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months. How long is that in years? Three and a half years. Okay. So this is the midpoint of the tribulation. He's given three and a half years to what? What's he going to do? It says in verse 6, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Again, this goes back to Revelation chapter 12. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Remember, if your name is not written in the book of life, you will end up standing before the great white throne judgment and you'll be judged for your sins. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints, meaning you're going to suffer in this tribulation period. So let's go back to verse 1. We're not going to do too much today. Basically just cover verse 1. 
Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So it says there, the sand of the sea. So what does this mean? This is a symbol, okay? Revelation has lots of symbols, so let's try and explain this symbol. Here, the sea is a symbol representing the nations, okay, the Gentile nations. And for example, I'll give you some proof of this. The invading armies who defeated Babylon were described as the sea. And you could picture the destruction resulting from these armies conquering Babylon as being like that caused by a tsunami crashing through a city. You've seen pictures of tsunamis destroying cities? Yeah. So Jeremiah 51.42 The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. Now there never was a tsunami that covered Babylon, but there was an army, yeah? And another proof that the sea is symbolic of the nations is what we read in Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 and 17. It says, And four great beasts came up from the sea. Uh, it's a similar to Revelation 13, right? Each different from the other. Those, and verse 17, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms. Okay, so he's explained that the four great beasts are four kingdoms. Which arise out of what? The earth. The people of the earth. So the interpretation from the sea is out of the earth. It's from the people of the earth. So it's not literally out of the ocean. So here Daniel describes four kingdoms of world empires that come out of the sea, or, as interpreted, it means from the people living on the earth. Can you remember the chart? I've got a couple of questions for you. So according to Daniel chapters 2 and 7, what were the last four kingdoms or empires that would rule the world from the time of Daniel? Babylon first, then Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Good. Now what does the image in Daniel 2 tell us about the last world empire, the Roman Empire? It's split, yeah, it's two stages. So the first stage is the two legs of iron, and that represents a historical Roman Empire. From our point of view, it's historical, it's past, it's done. But the feet of iron and clay represent the revived Roman Empire, which will be destroyed when? When Jesus comes back. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 2. From what we learned over the last two weeks going through Daniel, what kingdom or empire do you think this beast represents in Revelation 13 verse 1? It's one of those four. The last one is the revived Roman Empire. Or it could just be talking about the Antichrist. And it could be both. Because if you go back to Daniel, it's obviously the kingdom. Here, it's more like it's referring to the Antichrist. I'll explain that now. So it says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. So... I promise I would explain Revelation chapter 12 verse 3 when we came to this verse here.
chapter 13, verse 1, because they're very similar. So I'm going to put both those verses on the screen for you and have a look and see what is the same and see what is different. So I'll read them out. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, this is Revelation 13, verse 1, and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And Revelation 12, 3, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. So, the seven heads and ten horns, the crowns, the diadems are the same, yeah? What's different? In Revelation 12, it's coming from the dragon, yeah? The dragon, or the Satan, the dragon represents Satan. Satan has these seven heads and ten horns. In chapter 13, it's the government or the Antichrist that has the seven heads and ten horns. Is that a contradiction? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Is that a contradiction? Aha! That's the way, yeah. The beast that comes out of the sea, is it the Antichrist, the Roman Empire? It's yes. <laughs> yes and yes, alright? They are synonymous terms. So how can it be referring to both the Antichrist and the revived Roman Empire? Well, there's a quote here, and this is going to help us understand. The person is often the symbol of the government, and what is said of the government can be said of him. That make sense? The person is often the symbol of the government, and what is said of the government can be said of him. So the revived Roman Empire is ruled by the Antichrist, and so what he wants or does is what the Empire wants or does, and in turn, the Antichrist is ruled or controlled by Satan, and so what Satan wants or does is what the Antichrist wants or does, and so all three are synonymous. I want you to think about this, just might help you understand a bit more. Imagine this, our Prime Minister decides to go to war with China. One newspaper reports that Scott Morrison is at war with China, while another newspaper reports that Australia has gone to war with China. Who is right? They're both right. So remember our quote? The person is often the symbol of the government, and what is said of the government can be said of him. And so that explains why in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, the government is represented as being on the shoulders or coming from the empire, and in the other chapters coming from Satan, but it's all synonymous. They all have the same effect on this world. Does that make sense? Yeah. They are all in complete agreement, and what one does, the other does. Okay, a question for you. Concerning the second half of the tribulation, we can ask a similar question, right? And the question is, who is persecuting the saints? So, according to Revelation twelve seventeen, who is persecuting the saints? It's Satan, right? Okay. Now we ask the same question, but different. According to Revelation 
13 verse 7, who is persecuting the saints? The Antichrist. Ah, okay. And could we say also that the revived Roman Empire or government is persecuting the saints? Yeah. They're all following orders given by the Antichrist who takes his rule, his lead from Satan. So Satan and the Antichrist are the symbols of the government. Okay. Now the ten horns. We already know that, right? We've been through that in Daniel, and it again it comes up here. So the best way of doing that is simply to read Revelation 17, verses 12 to 14, which spells it out very, very clearly. And that says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. That means the last half of the tribulation, a short period of time. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Who's the beast? Antichrist. Yep. These will make war with the Lamb. These, all of them, all ten, right? And the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And that's us. Remember, God sees you as chosen and faithful. Whether you feel like it or not, it doesn't matter, but God sees you as chosen and faithful. Now, notice that Revelation 17 12 makes it clear that the ten horns represent what? Ten individual kings who will rule and reign with who? The Antichrist, the small horn or the beast. And the ruling for one hour refers to a short period of time being three and a half years. And you can go into Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and you see a similar thing there. The hour of trial. A short time of trial. So, some questions to finish off. What does it mean when it says that the Antichrist shall honour a god of fortresses? Yeah, he's going to use military might. Yep, He's going to use a threat of military might or power to achieve his goals. Now, referring to this verse on the screen, Daniel 11.39, what might it refer to when it says in Daniel 11.39, he will deal or defeat the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign god? The UFOs, yeah, could be. All right, don't know. I'm not putting any money on that. But we don't know what Satan's going to do. It could be pretty spectacular. I'm imagining it's going to be pretty spectacular. You know, fire from heaven, all those kind of things. You never know what he's going to do. It could be a little green man coming out of a spaceship who preaches to people to try and... I'm serious, it could be. So, materialize that. Um, Revelation 12, 2 tells us that Satan gives his power, his throne, and great authority to who? The Antichrist, yeah? Or the beast. Who ends up controlling the revived Roman Empire? The Antichrist and Satan, yeah. How much of the world will the revived Roman Empire control? All of it, yeah. How long will the revived Roman Empire control the world? Seven years, yeah. 
According to Revelation 4, 14.9-11, what happens to those who take the mark of the beast and worship his image? They're tormented forever, where? In the lake of fire, yeah. And according to Revelation 14.9-11, are there any second chances for those who take the mark of the beast and worship his image? No. Okay. So, last question. What are the two basic choices that every person has in this life? We can worship someone or, yeah, worship God or worship Satan. And you think about what Jesus said in John 8, 44, talking to the Pharisees. You do what your father does or loves because you belong to him. Talking about Satan, your father, Satan. So they weren't actively, consciously Satan worshipping, but they lived their lives in worship of Satan because they're doing what Satan wanted them to do. They lived according to Satan's priorities, Satan's desires, and not God's desires. So we're going to come back to this next week. Father, thank you that your power is living within us. We don't need to be afraid. And Lord, we can expect the constant battles, but the promise is we will live forever with you in the end. Lord, the unbelievers down here seem to have a great old time. And they are, to a certain extent. But Lord, the fate that awaits them is literally worse than death. So I just pray that you will cause us to have an eternal focus, an eternal point of view, that we will live with you forever in the end. And the trials that we go through are for our good, to transform us more into your image. And the more we are transformed into your image, the more we get to enjoy our relationship with you. There's no shortcuts. There's only one way, and it's through trials. And those trials can be through temptation, they can be through external circumstances, and they can through Satan's attacks. So I just pray, Lord, that you help us to remain strong and to be overcomers, Lord, and to be victors, to be celebrating our victory over evil, to be walking in the victory, walking in the light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The following is our communion message for this morning. The Father's love. So what's our motivation for serving? Yeah, gratitude. We just simply return the love that he's first shown to us. So God's gift of salvation is Jesus' death on the cross as a payment for our sins. But how does a person receive that salvation? So I just want to talk quickly about that this morning as we come to the Lord's table to communion, have communion together. And I want to focus on confession and repentance, just talk briefly about those two things. Now you probably understand that you need to confess your sins in order for God to forgive you. And to confess simply means that you agree with God that, yes, what I've done is wrong. 
and you are right, you're holy, I'm not. And we recognize who God is, we recognize who we are, and we agree with that. And it's the same thing confessing to another person too. I was wrong, and would you please forgive me? So the scripture for that is 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So notice the if there. It's not something he forces us to do, it's something we choose to do. Now, what about repentance? Jesus talked about repentance in Luke 13, 1-5. It says, About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I'll tell you again, that unless you repent, you will perish too. So, basically, in a nutshell, no repentance, no salvation. Why? Jesus makes it clear what it is. Why do you say repentance is there? Turning away from your sins and turning to God. Yeah, so I put it in bold, he said it twice. Turning away from your sins and turning to God. That's what repentance is. Is it just a change in your behavior? Or does it start as a change of heart? It's a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior, a change of attitude. So it's not just changing your behavior. It starts with us being sorry for the way our sin hurts God. We have to start thinking that way. We are grieving God when we sin. I'm sorry, God, for hurting you. I'm sorry, God, for rebelling against you. So I'm going to just go to the Old Testament, and there's a really good example of repentance. The context is the captives have come back from Babylon. They are in Jerusalem again. And they have been unfaithful to God by marrying the foreign women, like the Amorites and the all the other nations around who were worshipping false gods. And some of their kids had grown up and they weren't even speaking the Hebrew language. So it tells you where they're going to head, right? So Ezra chapter 10 and just a few verses, verses 2 to 4 and 10 to 12. We have been unfaithful to our God, for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. I like that. But in spite of this, there is hope. So if we sin... In spite of that, there is hope, yeah? All right. Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given by you and by the others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. We live by the word of God, right? Get up, for it is your duty to tell us how to proceed in setting things straight. We are behind you, so be strong and take action. So that's the leaders of the land talking to Ezra. He's a teaching priest. 
Then Ezra the priest stood and said to them, You have committed a terrible sin. By marrying pagan women, you have increased Israel's guilt. Okay, so you've done the wrong thing. What do you do? So, now confess your sin to the Lord. And now everything's going to be all right, right? (laughs) No. Okay. So now confess your sin to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do what he demands. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from these pagan women. Then the whole assembly raised their voices and answered, Yes, you are right. We must do as you say. So the context is that it's raining, it's freezing cold, it's the winter. And they said, look, if you're serious about repenting, about turning from this sin, come to Jerusalem within three days. And so the whole nation has come to Jerusalem. The whole nation is repenting, confessing and repenting. It's not just one or two people. So this is what should be happening in our heart. The Spirit was moving in their hearts to convict them and causing them to repent. It's the work of the Spirit. So this is a clear call both to confession and repentance. And why were they serious about this? Because they wanted to renew their relationship with God. They were willing to do whatever it took to come back into relationship with God. And just have a look at focus on one thing here. It says, So now confess your sin to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do what he demands. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from these pagan women. So for us today, we are tempted to compromise and become a part of this world through either what we watch, who we hang out with, who we talk to, things we do. We've got to separate ourselves. And that's a part of what God is doing. And the next thing it says there, let it be done according to the law of our Lord, be strong and take action. So it's not just talking, it's living according to the word of God and being strong to take action. So for us today, I want to give you a chance to think about if there's anything in your life, in my life, that we need to repent of or confess. And if you are truly sorry for your sin, then you will want to change. However, if you confess but don't change, then that means it's an empty or meaningless confession. I did that for a long time as a teenager. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I'd always say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. But I always did. (laughs) It wasn't a real confession, you know. It was just words. I knew that I was going to do it again. I wasn't putting my relationship with God first. I was putting my own pleasure first. Now, this doesn't mean that if you repeat a sin again, that your confession and repentance were not genuine. So, for example, if I lie and I'm truly sorry, it doesn't mean I'm never going to lie again. True? Yeah? All right. But it does mean that I will be making a genuine effort by God's grace and God's strength not to lie. So how should I be changing? Should I be still lying the same amount? Or should I be lying less? Lying less. Okay, I should be changing. should be having a less of a tendency to lie. So I've got a couple of quotes just to finish up. Something for you to think about. 
The first one is from David Guzek and the second one is from Spurgeon. David Guzek says, We might even say that their confession would be vain or empty without corresponding repentance. This repentance, the decision to stop one's sinful behavior and to do his will, is an essential element of the Christian life. So we confess and repent to receive salvation, but we need to continue to confess and repent to maintain our relationship with God. Not to maintain salvation, but to maintain our relationship. Okay, The practical aspect of our relationship. And Spurgeon said, Perhaps you have the notion that repentance is a thing that happens at the commencement of the spiritual life and has to be got through as one undergoes a certain operation and there is an end of it. If so, you are greatly mistaken. Repentance lives as long as faith. Towards faith, I might also call it a Siamese twin. We shall need to believe and to repent as long as ever we live. So, Spurgeon is saying that faith and repentance go hand in hand. To live by faith means to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by my own strength, right? That's works. Faith or works. Then my faith, it's God who's in me, working in me, giving me the power to live his life through me. So he gives me both the strength and the desire to repent, to change. That's where the power comes from. And it comes from just, am I going to choose to live for him or live for myself? That's true repentance if you want to live for him. So 